Hello and welcome to All Indians Matter. I am Ashraf Engineer. That India has one of the worst records on hunger is no secret, but it's a crisis that has intensified after the COVID-19 pandemic and persists in many ways despite the almost complete lifting of the lockdown. For instance, a recent survey showed that 77% of particularly vulnerable tribal families, 76% of Dalits and 54% of Adivasis said their food consumption decreased in September-October 2020 as compared to the pre-lockdown period. A National Family Health Survey found that hunger and malnutrition may be increasing instead of decreasing in India. One indication of this is the increasing proportion of underweight children under the age of five. The Global Nutrition Report doesn't make for happy reading either. For example, no progress has been made towards achieving the target of reducing anemia among women of reproductive age, with 51.4% of women aged 15 to 49 now affected. What is the full extent of India's hunger crisis and why haven't we been able to resolve it? And what are the solutions? All Indians Matter it's rare to have a guest as distinguished as renowned economist Dr. Sean Drez, and we are absolutely privileged to have him on the show. Dr. Drez is a Belgian-born economist who is now more Indian than most Indians. He is also a social scientist and an activist. He has worked on several developmental issues facing India like hunger, famine and gender inequality. He studied mathematical economics at the University of Essex and completed his PhD at the Indian Statistical Institute, New Delhi. John is taught at the London School of Economics and is currently visiting professor at Ranchi University as well as honorary professor at the Delhi School of Economics. He has made wide-ranging contributions to development economics and public policy. His research interests include rural development, social inequality, elementary education, child nutrition, healthcare, and food security. He has to his name several books and his co-authors include Nobel laureates Amartya Sen and Angus Deaton. Today, we will talk about chronic hunger and malnutrition in India. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Ashraf. It's a pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Sean, India has always fared poorly when it comes to hunger. For some reason, despite seven decades of independence, we are ranked 94 out of 107 countries on the Global Hunger Index. The situation, in fact, worsened between 2015 and 19. For instance, the prevalence of child wasting was 17.3% in comparison to 15.1% in 2010 to 14. So what is India doing wrong? So, Ashraf, uh, maybe the recent worsening we can talk a about a little later because we have to first understand the uh, baseline situation. You referred to the Global Hunger Index. I'm not actually all that fond of that index. I think it's not all that informative and in some respect it's even problematic, but that doesn't matter. We have plenty of evidence also from many other sources, whether it's clinical studies, uh, data on food intake, anthropometric data, all pointing to the fact that India has one of the worst levels of under, undernourishment and particularly child undernutrition in the world. So for example, if you look at data on uh, weight for age or height for age among children, you find that according to the latest uh, National Family Health Survey or rather the fourth National Family Health Survey in 2015-16, 38% of Indian children were stunted. That means had a low height for age and 36% were underweight, so they had low weight for age. So these are dramatic figures, and uh, very few countries in the world, uh, with a few exceptions like maybe Niger and Yemen, have worse undernutrition figures. That's the first point we have to be aware of. Now, of course, to some extent, this is because India is struggling with a heavy 
historical legacy of undernourishment. We should not forget that at the time of independence, the life expectancy in India was barely 30 years, and there were uh, famines and uh, even higher levels of undernourishment. So India has to deal with that. It takes time. But many other countries that were more or less at the same level at that time have done much better, including, for example, China, Sri Lanka, or for that matter, even within India, the state of Kerala, and more recently, our neighbor Bangladesh. So India could have done a lot better in terms of overcoming that historical challenge and could have achieved much better levels of nutrition today among children as well as adults. I think to come to your question, what is going wrong? What You, know, you said what? What is India doing wrong? We have to declare, are we talking of the Indian government or the Indian society? Because there are different issues there. I think, broadly speaking, there are three things that have slowed things down very badly. Uh, one is the lopsided nature of economic growth in India and the huge inequalities, uh, meaning that despite rapid economic growth, the decline of poverty has been really quite slow. Uh, if you look also at the Real wages, for example, they've been increasing very slowly, even though the GDP was increasing much faster, which means that a lot of people still today simply can't afford a nutrition, nutritious diet. I mean, if you calculate the cost of an adequately nutritious diet today, it will be much more for a family of average size than the uh, minimum wage, let alone the market wage. So that is one obvious problem, the persistence of poverty despite rapid economic growth. Second, I think there's a chronic neglect of social policy and human development that goes back right to the days of, of when India became independent that continued right through the post-liberalization period. And that's where there's a big contrast with uh, China, Sri Lanka, and uh, Kerala, obviously. And then thirdly, I think that India is struggling with a very special nexus of inequalities, not just the economic inequality, but also the caste and gender inequalities, the inequalities of access to education. Uh, that makes a lot of things very difficult. I mean, just to give one example, uh, the gender inequalities in India are quite extreme, whether you look at the female-male ratio in the population, the labor force participation, race of women, or almost any gender indicator, India is really doing pretty badly. And obviously, when women are so disempowered, you know, they have no property, little education, no power within the family, uh, no time for that matter. All this obviously makes it much harder for them to look after themselves and after their children. And the fact is that in India, it's mainly the women who are looking after the children. So I think this disempowerment of women uh, makes a big contribution to the persistence of undernutrition as do also other kinds of inequalities, including caste inequality. So these are, I think, the three big challenges that India, both Indian government and Indian society, are facing in achieving more rapid reduction of undernutrition. Absolutely. And how did the situation worsen during the pandemic? So there's a lot of evidence that uh, food insecurity grew significantly during the lockdown and the uh, period that followed. And in, in fact, to this day, there are something like, you know, 70 or 75 household surveys that were done in that period, many of which include information on food intake and food insecurity. And most of them show quite dramatic indications of worsening food insecurity, rising hunger, people skipping meals, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, there are studies by uh, Yale University, by Azim Plenji University, by Dalberg and right to food campaign, many others. 
So I don't think there's any doubt that hunger and food security increased very significantly in 2020, and not just with, during the lockdown, also after the lockdown, uh, pro- probably to this day. I mean, the, even the most recent surveys still show uh, rising food insecurity. And that obviously would translate in higher undernutrition and probably also higher disease and mortality. In fact, there is some recent work still in progress that suggests that uh, overall mortality increased very significantly in 2020, maybe by 50%, maybe even more. And that the bulk of that was not COVID mortality, but non-COVID mortality to which rising undernutrition would have certainly contributed. This is still work in progress, so we're waiting for the confirmed results. But I think there is absolutely no doubt that things worsened uh, during the lockdown and the period that followed. Uh, Are there any states which are particularly affected? Uh, Which are the worst affected states, rather? So if you are asking uh, which states in India have the highest levels of undernourishment and particularly child undernutrition, basically, I mean, it's Bihar, Jharkhand, certainly, and uh, the states that used to be called Bimaru states, the undivided states of Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, Adarshan, Uttar Pradesh. So basically that North Indian region, which also has many other deprivations in the field of human development. And I think the unfortunate thing is that most likely these are also the states that not only were worse off to start with, but were also hit hit harder during the lockdown and the crisis that followed. Uh, First of all, a lot of the migrant workers uh, who were the worst affected sections of the population during the lockdown came from these states, and particularly Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, Jharkhand, and so on. And then after the lockdown, when they came back to these states, uh, what developed is a huge excess uh, supply of labor in these states, leading to huge unemployment. We can still see it today. In fact, I'm sitting in Jharkhand. We can still see here today that people are struggling to find something to do and to earn a living. You can see a big increase in street vending, for example, because all kinds of people can't find a proper job. So they sell eggs on the street or something or chowmen just to earn whatever they can. So, so the states that were poorer to start with also uh, were more affected by the crisis of employment and poverty that followed. So I think uh, this is uh, something that uh, is not helping at all. Yeah, and this is something I believe that uh, it's a trend that has persisted actually even after the lockdown has been lifted. And that's right. I, I'm talking. I'm talking of the period after the lockdown in particular, both during the lockdown and after the lockdown. Right. Uh, Dr. Sean, could you tell us specifically about tribals and Dalits, essentially the less privileged? How does hunger manifest itself and what impact does it have on their lives? I think that undernutrition basically adds to all the disadvantages that they already face. Uh, They already face huge problems of exceptionally high levels of poverty, low access to education, low access to social networks, and then undernutrition reinforces these disadvantages. It means, for example, that their productivity is lower, they earn lower wages. The learning achievements at school of children who are undernourished tend to be lower than those of other children, so that also pushes them further into the trap of poverty and lack of education and so on. And of course, it also means poorer health and greater exposure to disease, including poorer health for 
women, including pregnant women, which means that they will not be able to have a healthy pregnancy. Uh, the children that they give birth to will probably have a low birth weight and so again be undernourished right from the day of birth. So that will uh, perpetuate the vicious cycle, uh, cycle the, uh, the intergenerational uh, reproduction of undernutrition. So all this basically contributes to keeping them in that disadvantaged position. Yeah, I think that's a very important point, Shot, because I don't think most people make the connection between social discrimination and hunger and therefore maternal health and then children being stunted. And it, it, like you said, it's just a sort of a vicious cycle. Here's, here's, the real, here's, here's really the one question that should uh, you know concern us all. How does a country that has risen economically to become one of the fastest growing economies in the past three decades also become one that has such chronic hunger? So as I said earlier, chronic hunger is not new in India. It's been around for a very long time. But yes, with uh, such rapid economic growth, we would expect much more progress in the reduction of undernutrition. And the progress, in fact, has been very slow. There has been some progress, of course, but very slow for the reasons that I tried to explain at the beginning. In fact, uh, in the 10-year period that preceded the fourth National Family Health Survey, the, between basically 2005 and 2015-16, for the first time, we did see uh, significant progress in child nutrition, child mortality, maternal mortality, uh, maternal nutrition. So for the first time, there was some significant progress, not terribly rapid still, but certainly an improvement compared to what had preceded. And I think that is because that was a period when there was both reasonably rapid economic growth, uh, some increase in real wages, especially, especially after the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act came into force, and uh, more active social policies. I mean, this was the time of not only Narega coming into force, but also later on the Food Security Act, the introduction of middemies in the schools, big expansion in the integrated child development services, the introduction of maternity benefits with the National Food Security Act. So there was, it was a time when, at least compared to the earlier period, there was some effort to uh, be more active in the field of social policy. So I think both through that and uh, reasonably rapid economic growth and increases in real wages, finally one saw some significant progress in human development, including, for instance, a reduction of about 50% in uh, what is called multidimensional Poverty, which is a kind of attempt to capture all the different deprivations that are associated with poverty. Unfortunately, that uh, trend was not sustained at all. And what has been happening in the last uh, seven years or so uh, is both a loss of the steam of economic growth, uh, especially after, the demon after demonetization, the rate of economic growth going down quarter after, after quarter, and uh, also a return to the days of gross neglect of social policy. In fact, I would say worse than what, anything that had happened before with, for example, some unprecedented budget cuts in 2015-16 in uh, child nutrition and education programs. Uh, so I think that really defeated the progress that had been made and uh, is largely responsible for the stagnation that we have seen in the last few years. You've been vocal about what you call the paradox of hunger amidst plenty. 
the recession precipitated by covid-19 exposed huge numbers of people to food insecurity and this seems to have continued well after lockdown as uh, you, you also just suggested on the other hand excess cereal stocks have reached unprecedented levels and in fact set to grow further this year so there seems to be a growing imbalance between production and procurement on the one hand and distribution on the other so could you talk a little bit about that uh, yes ashraf you are right uh, the, the food stocks the food grain stocks of the food corporation of india in july 2020 for the first time ever reached nearly 100 million tons and nothing like that had happened happened before and quite likely this year this will happen again it may even cross 100 million tons and obviously when so many people are struggling with food insecurity it's absolutely unacceptable that such large food stocks should be accumulated and kept away from them now the reason for that the reason for what is happening as you pointed out is that the procurement and the distribution are not in tune with each other the distribution of food grain essentially is uh determined by the national food security act so under the national food security act the public distribution system has to cover about 2/3 of the population and then there are also other welfare schemes like the mid day meal program and the icds Uh, that requires some allocation of food grain so all that put together adds up to something like 60 million tons at the time when the national food security act was passed in 2013 procurement was also roughly in that range of 60 65 million tons so the two were more or less in tune so that was sustainable but what has happened in the meantime is that distribution levels have remained the same but procurement levels have increased to 70 million tons 3 years ago 80 million tons 2 years ago 90 million tons 1 year ago and this year it might even reach close to 100 million tons so the two are out of gear and because procurement levels are now about 30 35 million tons more than distribution the stocks are accumulating which i think is a great injustice so my view is that what you procure you must distribute if you just procure to accumulate stocks you are really not helping poor people in fact you are making more, things more difficult for them so i think it's important to restore that balance uh, last year from april to november as you would know the distribution of food under the public distribution system was roughly doubled so the food ration the monthly food rations more or less doubled and that helped to contain the growth of stocks so it was a good thing because it helped people to survive and it also helped to avoid this wasteful accumulation of stocks unfortunately this doubling of food rations was discontinued in november even though food insecurity and unemployment continued and that is why we're going to now face a new wave of excess food stocks so i really feel that the government should have continued the expanded distribution of food rations for that matter throughout 2021 we have plenty of stocks for that purpose so it would have helped people to survive it would help have helped to avoid the waste of excess food stocks but unfortunately the government uh, is not doing that and i really don't know what the plan is how the government is planning to deal with the surplus of uh, fci food stocks that is going to uh, happen again this year in the national family health survey i mentioned earlier the proportion of children who are underweight has actually risen this too is contradictory to 
what should happen in a growing economy. Now, before you answer, I should point out that the study surveyors had started fanning out to households since mid-2019. So the phase one results actually pre-COVID-19. Uh, if anything, the situation would have worsened during the lockdown. Uh, yes, you're right, Ashraf. I think that you're referring to the findings of the fifth National Family Health Survey, which were released a few weeks ago. And uh, they show that compared to the fourth survey, which happened four years earlier in 2015-16, basically, there has been no improvement in uh, child nutrition. For example, the proportion of underweight children and the proportion of stunted children was more or less the same in both surveys, if anything, perhaps even worse in 2019-20 compared to 2015-16. And, and as you rightly pointed out, this was just before the lockdown, so things would have got worse even after that. So I think that this basically adds to a number of other indications that things have not been going well since 2016, especially in the informal sector and especially for the poorer sections of the population. Uh, there are many indications of that. There's the National Family Health Survey. There is the stagnation of real wages. There is the slowdown of economic growth. There is the 2017-18 round of the National Sample Survey, which showed for the first time an increase in poverty compared to the previous round in 2011-12, and then, of course, was promptly uh, suppressed by the central government. And then there's also some evidence of a slowdown in the reduction of child mortality in that period. So I think there are many indications that things have not been going well in the last few years, especially for the poorer sections of the population. And I think that is partly a reflection of the manner in which the economy was derailed from 2016 onwards by demonetization. And also, uh, it's a consequence of what I mentioned earlier, the uh, reversal of active social policies, the uh, neglect of the social sector across the board, uh, in, not just since 2016, in fact, since 2014, including some really amazing budget cuts in uh, child nutrition programs and so on. So I think the best way for the time being to interpret these provisional results of the NFHS survey uh, is that it's a consequence of these trends. In fact, India has been underperforming economically for more quarters than we can remember now. I think you mentioned it briefly earlier too. A 2017-18 consumption survey by the National Statistical Office showed a steep drop in monthly per capita consumption in rural India. And things didn't improve since then. So again, what's going wrong? So we don't have a lot of data to answer this question because the statistical system has also suffered a lot in the last few years. So we don't know very much about what has been happening in the informal sector in particular. But my feeling is this, you know, before that, before 2016, uh, the Indian economy had been growing steadily at 7 7.5% per year, if you look at GDP, uh, for the best of 12 years. And this is very unusual. I don't think people realized at that time how well the economy was doing. In fact, many people felt, you know, 7%, what is this? It should be much more, it should be 10%, 12%. I think, you know, that's really... Uh, underestimate the difficulty of sustaining high growth for a long period of time. Very few countries have been able to sustain that kind of growth for a long time, with the major exception, of course, of China. And uh, it, it's basically a kind of fragile equilibrium. I mean, a lot of things have to be uh, have to come together 
you need uh, high investment, you need high expectations, you need good macroeconomic policies that ensure some stability. And uh, I think what happened is that this fragile equilibrium was basically disturbed by demonetization. Uh, at that time, I wrote that demonetization was like shooting, shooting at the tires of a racing car. Uh, and I think that is basically what happened, you know, that the, the, the car was sent in, into the ditch. And uh, from then on, a lot of things became very difficult. I remember you weren't very popular when you wrote that, at least not with the, the supporters of the government. Right. Tell us about the situation in rural India now. Can you tell us a little more about it. In fact, how bad are things? So I think things are still pretty bad, not just in rural India, in fact, both in rural and urban India. For one thing, we should realize that for many people, the lockdown never really ended. I mean, for example, the trains are still not running. Only a few high-speed trains are running for the middle class or rather the privileged class, the people who can afford to make reservations in these high-speed uh, AC trains. But the passenger, passenger trains are still not running. And the unreserved compartments in all the trains are still not open. So basically for most people, there are still no trains. Uh, the schools are mostly still closed. The Anganwadis, the childcare centers in many states are still closed or not functioning at full capacity. The courts are not fun functioning at full capacity. Uh, access to the jails is still restricted for in many states. So for a lot of people, some important aspects of the lockdown continue. And for all people, I think that there is, not all people, but certainly all people or most people in the informal sector, uh, the crisis of employment and wages continues. In fact, there's evidence, for example, for example from a recent survey of uh, Azim Premji University, which shows that uh, at the time of the survey, about two or three months ago, 15% uh, of the people who had a job before the lockdown had lost their job. And among those who were still employed, uh, the average earnings were still only about half of what they were earning before the lockdown. Now, these are really dramatic figures when you bear in mind that how low the wages were in the first place. So I think that we are still very much in uh, the middle of an of a economic and humanitarian crisis. And that's why it's so disappointing that the last budget made no recognition of that and did not take any significant measures to try to provide continued relief in the year that is coming and basically returned to a business-focused economic policy. In fact, uh, since you mentioned the last budget, it pretty drastically slashed allocations for the nutrition of children and women. So what are your views on that? No, absolutely. And the interesting thing is that there was hardly any discussion of it in the days that followed the budget. Usually, the business sector, which dominates these discussions, always praises the budget because the business sector wants to be in the, in the good books of the government. So once again, this year, the business sector praised the budget. But in fact, there were some absolutely extraordinary budget cuts uh, in the field of not only nutrition, but also education that were not discussed at all because they don't affect the business sector. So, uh, for example... If you look at the budget of the Ministry of Women and Child Development, which would include uh, maternity benefits, child nutrition programs, the integrated child development services, and so on, the budget of this ministry was cut by 20% uh, 
even though the total budget increased by about 15%. It was 30 lakh crores last year, 35 lakh crores this year, so quite a substantial increase. And in spite of this increase in the total budget, the budget of the Ministry of Women and Child Development was reduced by 20%. And similarly, the budget of the uh, Department of School Education was reduced by 6,000 crores. I mean, this is quite extraordinary at a time when we know that children have suffered so much during the lockdown and the period that followed, and that there's a crisis of schooling in particular. So it was really a time to take very bold measures in these fields, and that was not done at all. Furthermore, we should remember that this is the second time that there are budget cuts in child nutrition programs and related programs in the last seven years. Already in 2015-16, in the first full budget of the uh, NDA government, uh, there were similar budget cuts. And so if you look at the cumulative impact of these two rounds of budget cuts, what they mean is that in real terms, the budget for ICDS and midday meals today is only about 60% of what it was seven years ago. So you can imagine for people who are running these anganwadis, the child care centers, and trying to provide midday meals, if they have a budget 40% less in real terms today than what they had seven years ago, you can imagine how difficult it is to maintain the reach and quality of services. And there is direct evidence that the reach of these services has declined in recent years. For example, if you look at the number of children who are receiving supplementary nutrition under ICDS or preschool education, these numbers have been going down year after year, according to the government's own data. So this is the situation. And uh, as I said earlier, it has contributed to the stagnation of child nutrition and child welfare indicators in the last few years. Absolutely. And I want to stay with the theme of these uh, cuts, uh, Sean. Under the National Food Security Act of 2013, every pregnant woman was entitled to maternity benefits of 6,000 rupees unless she was already receiving similar benefits as a government employee or under, or under other laws. Now, the Pradhan Mantri Matru Vandana Yojana, announced by Prime Minister Narendra Modi on December 31st, uh, 2016, reduced the benefits from 6,000 rupees to 5,000 per child. Uh, second, they are now restricted to the first living child. And third, they are further restricted to women above the age of 18 years. So what is the cumulative impact of this? Uh, Ashraf, I'm glad that you're mentioning these maternity benefits because very few people, people pay attention to them. But this was actually one of the most innovative provisions of the National Food Security Act. As you mentioned, under the National Food Security Act, all pregnant women... Uh, except those already covered in the former sector, are entitled to maternity benefits of 6,000 rupees per child, which is not a lot, but of course it can be increased. And I think the principle of universal maternity benefits was very important. In fact, I discovered, or rather I and some colleagues of mine discovered just a few days ago, that according to compilations of social policies in Africa and Asia, by UNDP and UNICEF, only two other countries have universal maternity benefits. Maybe they missed one or two countries, but basically very few countries. Uh, Mongolia, because Mongolia has a problem of underpopulation, so they are trying to promote fertility, and uh, Nepal with very low uh, benefits per child. 
So this provision of universal maternity benefits was really a very uh, important provision of the National Food Security Act. Unfortunately, very little importance was attached to it. For a full four years, the central government did nothing to implement it. And then in 2017, finally, it launched this program that you have mentioned, the uh, PMNDY, the Pradhan Mantri Matru Vandana Yojana, but restricting it to one child per woman and reducing the benefits and, of course, making them conditional. And the effect of that is not just to violate the law, this is, these are illegal restrictions, but also it means that the program itself was a bit of a flop because, uh, you know, if it had been universal, then all women would have had a stake in it. And you can imagine the kind of public pressure that would have been built around that program. As happened, for example, in Orissa, where there is a program that covers two children, not just one child. Uh, it's called the Mamta Scheme. And it's actually a very successful and very popular program. So the government had a chance with PMNDY to launch a similar successful popular program. And instead of that, for the sake of saving money, and these are very, very small amounts of money. You know, if you uh, wanted to implement the act with universal coverage and benefits of 6,000 rupees per child, it would cost less than 15,000 crores rupees per year, which is not much at all. Today, the government is not even spending 3,000 crore rupees. So the effective coverage as a proportion of all births is still only around maybe 25%. So the scheme has really been ruined because of uh, stinginess. And I think that's a great pity because, you know, the uh, special needs of pregnancy, whether it's uh, the need for good food, the need for rest, the need for healthcare, these special needs are very rarely satisfied. In fact, we did a survey two years ago of maternal health and maternal care in uh, six states of India. And we were, uh, we were appalled to find uh, how so many pregnant women had to struggle with the worst possible problems of weakness, undernutrition, lack of access to healthcare, lack of rest uh, during their pregnancy. And obviously, this doesn't help to reduce child nutrition. I mean, in Uttar Pradesh, for example, for example, we found that the weight gain in pregnancy was only about four kilos. This is ridiculously low. Uh, we found that one third of pregnant women had not had a single health checkup during their pregnancy. We found that 40% of women didn't even know whether they had gained any weight during pregnancy. So all these problems that pregnant women face obviously uh, make a major contribution to the perpetuation of child nutrition. And maternity benefits uh, would help, to some extent at least, uh, pregnant women to face these problems, to make sure that they get good food, that they get rest, that they get healthcare, that they're able to look, look after their children. So this was a very important initiative that unfortunately has been derailed by the government. So, so what are the immediate steps the government should take to first reduce and then eventually eradicate hunger? Well, I think that generally speaking, the most important thing is to reverse this gross neglect of human development and social policy that I talked about earlier, and that has been particularly pronounced in the last seven years. Uh, so that's not just about nutrition programs. It's also about education. It's about health. It's about social security. I think in none of these fields, we have seen any really significant initiative in the last seven years. So I think there's a need for a very radical departure there. 
and putting much more resources, not just financial resources, but also uh, political resources uh, in these programs across the board. And if you want more specific uh, suggestions, I would say we have to certainly urgently revive and revamp the integrated child development services because ICDS is the only national program that enables the government to reach out to these children below the age of six years and to uh, pregnant and lactating women. It's really the only institutional platform that we have to provide a range of health and nutrition and also preschool education services. So I consider this program as perhaps the most important social program of the Indian government. But unfortunately, it has been starved of attention uh, and funds and all sorts of resources in the last few years, and the consequences of decline in the reach and quality of services. Uh, similarly, we should revise, uh, improve the midday meals in the schools. Uh, for example, the provision of eggs in midday meals, both in schools and in ICDS, should really be a national policy. I mean, it has been introduced in a number of states with very good results, not only in the southern states, but also in Orissa and to some extent even in Jharkhand and other states. So this really deserves to become a matter of national policy. And similarly, the maternity benefits that we have talked about uh, should be universalized and also increased in terms of the amount being paid. So I think the government has its work cut out on many of these fronts. Uh, so the first thing is to take these obvious steps and then I think to try to achieve a much more radical uh, departure from the historical neglect of human development and social policy in India. There's now a very famous report that India's billionaires grew their wealth by 35% during the pandemic. On the other hand, we have all this hunger that you have described. What does this tell you about us as a country? Well, I think what it tells us is that these billionaires have too much power. I mean, uh, Indian billionaires have been pampered for a long time. Uh, billionaires and the super rich generally. I mean, you know, India has no inheritance tax, no wealth tax, uh, low income tax rates at the top, a lot of exemptions and subsidies for the rich and so on and so forth. So this has been going on for some time. And I think it's really quite extraordinary, if you think of it, that the country has gone through such a crisis in the last few months, and especially that poor people have been going through such a catastrophe. And yet... We have not asked any of these super rich people to contribute anything. I mean, they have been allowed to enrich themselves further without making any contribution uh, to the uh, resources that are required to sustain relief policies for underprivileged people. So I think that really tells us, or rather confirms what we knew already, that these people have too much power and too much privilege. Let me, let me ask you a personal question. You were born in Belgium, but you have taken up Indian citizenship. Uh, you live in Ranchi and you travel often to very remote areas for your work. You are as Indian as Indian can be. What made you take up Indian nationality? Well, I have been in India since 1979. I became a citizen in 2002. By that time, I was clear that I wanted to live and work here. It seemed to be a good place for someone like me who is interested in development and social justice and public policy. In particular, because at that time, it seemed that India's democratic institutions made it possible for people like me to contribute uh, to change. 
Now that, of course, has changed <laughs> since then, and these democratic institutions have suffered a great deal. But anyway, that's how things looked at that time. And so it was, of course, very important to get citizenship because I don't think I could I could do the work that I'm doing today without being an Indian citizen. Or if I, if I could do it, then I would be living in constant fear of being harassed or visa being uh, denied and so on and so forth. So there was every, every reason for me to be government Indian citizen. Here's a question I ask all my guests as the final question of the interview. Why do you do the work that you do? Well, I'm curious to know what your other guests answer, because I think this is a question that a lot of people would find it hard to uh, respond to. I would say, firstly, a lot of it is out of spontaneous enthusiasm. I just like the work I do. I like the people I work with. I think I've been very privileged to work with all kinds of interesting and wonderful people over the years. So things have come to a point where it comes naturally. Other than that, I would say that uh, anyone who has the sort of privilege that you and I have, I think also have some responsibility. And I'm guessing that this is why you also do what you do. And I think it's a very natural human aspiration for everyone, uh, not just the privileged, uh, to uh, want to do something to make the world a better place around us, whether it's you know family or community or in the country or for that matter, the world at large. And I think I have just had more freedom than most people to pursue that aspiration. And so I feel that having had that freedom I also have a greater responsibility to do whatever I can. I don't think it's very much. I see it as part of a collective effort, and I'm happy to contribute what I can to that collective effort. So that's basically the way I see it in a few words. Jean, it's, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on the show. It's tough to imagine a more enlightening conversation and an important one about what should be one of our top national priorities. Thank you, Ashraf. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening. Please visit allindiansmatter.in that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-M-A-T-T-E-R.in for more columns and audio podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Ashraf Engineer that's A-S-H-R-A-F-E-N-G-I-N-W-E-R and All Indians Count that's A-L-L-I-N-D-I-A-N-S-C-O-U-N-T Search for the All Indians Matter page on Facebook. On Instagram, the handle is All Indians Matter. Email me at editor at allindiansmatter.in Catch you again soon. <laughs>